scripture today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, I'll be reading from the NASB. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thanks for making us partakers of the divine nature by faith in Christ. Be with our brother Tom as he speaks. Help us to have open minds. Lord, remove the blinders even now from our eyes and speak to us. Speak to our hearts so that we might be with you. Thank you for this awesome passage and our brother. May he preach it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to be back. During the little interval between first and second Peter, I uh, one of the books I read was uh, this one, and I highly recommend it. It's uh, Jonathan Aitken's biography of John Newton. I'd been wanting to read a biography of, of Newton for a long time, and that one did not disappoint. John Newton was the 18th century Anglican preacher and author who, of course, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which is the most well-known hymn in the history of Christian hymns by every measure. He was also the spiritual mentor to William Wilberforce, a politician and devout follower of Christ who spearheaded the move for the abolition of slavery in England and succeeded in that effort. And if there's one thing that comes through loud and clear in Newton's life story, it is that this was a man who came to personally and with transforming effect know the God of all grace. The journey that brought him to that personal defining knowledge of God was a long and arduous journey. It was filled with many dangers toils and snares, as, as well as with many failures and regrets. But the more fully Newton came to know the Word of God and the God revealed in that Word, the more aware he became of the magnitude of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Newton had been a calloused and unscrupulous slave trader as a young man. He had committed abuses and injustices that in later years he could barely bring himself to talk about. At times, weighed down with guilt over the awareness of his terrible sins, Newton was a man who nonetheless came to find the grace and goodness of God far weightier than his own sin. Steadily growing, both in the knowledge of his gracious Savior and in his usefulness to his Savior, Newton finished out his life having been powerfully, powerfully used by God. 
I can't even begin to recount the many things that God accomplished through this one faithful man. So I won't even try. Instead, I'll just read the biographer's own summary of Newton's life. Aiken said, throughout his long and influential public life, the outstanding features of Newton's private character were faith, humility, and gratitude. The faith was his certainty of God's faithfulness. The humility was his genuine sense of a sinner's unworthiness. The gratitude was the overflowing thankfulness of his heart for the amazing grace which in the lines of his immortal hymn saved a wretch like me. Newton's life is a vivid example of the very life to which the Apostle Peter on behalf of God calls every believer in this little three-chapter letter that we're about to study together. A life in which the redeemed sinner grows ever more aware of and ever more changed by the amazing grace of God. Even as his knowledge of the Word of God and of the Lord, his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ grows ever more personal, ever more pervasive, and ever more transforming. Now for starters, I want to put this short letter in its proper context. When was it written? To whom was it written? And then why was it written? The when is that this was Peter's second and final letter to the saints in all the churches whom he loves so dearly. According to chapter 1, verse 14, Peter knew when he wrote this letter that the laying aside of his temporary dwelling, his physical body, was imminent. Jesus had already told Peter that he would die a martyr's death for the sake of the Gospel. He told him that is recorded at the end of the Gospel of John. Now that time was drawing near. Tradition has it that Peter was executed by the Emperor Nero in Rome around A.D. 68. So many conservative Bible scholars place the writing of this epistle around A.D. 67 or 68. To whom is Peter addressing this letter? Well, he's writing to believers. After introducing himself as a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter says in verse 1 that he's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind, literally of the same value or preciousness as ours. The older translations do well in rendering this as those who received a like precious faith to ours. A like precious faith. Peter's point is not that the saints to whom he's writing believe the same Gospel that he did. That's definitely the case. But his point is that their faith is of the same value as his faith. And that of his fellow apostles and ministers of the Gospel. In Christ, the faith of an apostle or an evangelist or a pastor or an elder or a deacon is of no greater or lesser value than the faith of a slave or of a little child. And there's a very simple and straightforward reason for that. The value of our faith is determined by the value of its object of the one in whom that faith is placed. 
in 1 Peter 2, Peter spoke of the incomparable value of Jesus Himself. And he used the same essential adjective, precious. Citing the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of Jesus as God's precious cornerstone, 1 Peter 1.6. Then in the very next verse, he said this preciousness, this exceedingly great value, that is the value of Jesus Christ, God's cornerstone, is for you who believe. Every real Christian in this room this morning became a child of God by trusting in, believing in the same incomparable person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is His worthiness of that trust. His worthiness of our faith that makes the faith valuable. Think of it this way. Faith in a false Messiah is worthless, valueless faith. It can be just as fervent, just as zealous, just as sincere as that of the most zealous Christian. <laughs> but it's completely worthless, valueless. On the other hand, faith in the Savior of mankind and Lord of all creation is precious faith because of its precious object. And because it is the object of our faith that, de that determines the value of our faith, your trust in our Savior is as precious as mine or Peter's or Paul's or anyone else's. Peter's writing to all who share that like precious faith in Jesus Christ. Now it's imperative as we study this epistle just as in all the other New Testament epistles that we recognize who the audience is. There were undoubtedly some phony Christians in every church community that received this letter. But Peter's not addressing his words to them. This isn't like the junk mail that shows up in your mailbox addressed to current resident. Peter is explicitly writing to those who have received a like precious faith to his own. Some of the things that Peter says in this letter are most assuredly about unbelievers. <laughs> Especially his scathing indictment of false prophets in chapter 2. But the you to whom he is addressing every word of this letter is the saints of God who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. Now that's going to be very important for understanding certain things that Peter says in this letter. And it's no small matter that Peter says this faith was received. The word he uses here for received or obtained emphasizes the fact that the effort is on the side of the giver, not the receiver. Our faith is God's doing. That applies both to our faith as the body of doctrine that we believe to be true and to the belief itself. Both the content of our faith and the faith itself are gracious gifts from the God who gives life to the dead by giving faith to the faithless. Peter's goal. We've talked about the when and the who. Let's talk about the why. Why did Peter write this letter? He tells us, just like he did in the previous letter. At the end of the first letter, 
1 Peter 5.12, he said that his purpose for writing that letter was to testify to the true grace of God. And his goal in that writing was so that believers would stand firm in that true grace. Even in the midst of very great suffering and injustice and persecution for the cause of Christ. Peter's declared goal in writing this letter is that we will grow in that same true grace of God. Right up front in the very second verse of this letter, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And in the very last verse of this letter, he exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The bookends at the very beginning and very end of this letter are about growth in grace and growth in knowledge. His goal in this letter is that we'll grow up. Not just stand firm, but grow up in the transforming impact of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. That that impact will be multiplied in us and multiplied through us. If you take the two letters together, he wrote his epistles so we would stand firm in God's grace and grow up in God's grace. But throughout this letter, Peter links growth in grace with growth in knowledge. Those two things are absolutely inseparable. They're really two facets of the same beautiful diamond. Now you and I cannot grow in grace if we are not growing in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm not talking about just information. (laughs) I'm talking about the personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. That personal knowledge of God does not exist apart from knowledge of God's Word. We're going to talk more about that in just a bit. Peter's focus in the first 11 verses of this chapter is on us becoming sharers and bearers of God's character. Useful partakers of the divine nature. Sharers and bearers of God's character. That's my title for today's message and for next Sunday's message. Becoming sharers and bearers of God's character. Parts 1 and 2. We'll look at the sharers part of that this morning and the bearers part next week in verses 5 through 11. Once again, the goal of Peter's first epistle was that we would stand firm in God's true grace, not some crummy imitation of grace that pushes suffering out of the picture, but real grace, true grace that continues to be miraculously gracious even in the midst of the worst suffering and injustice that we face as God's children. The goal of the second epistle is growth in that grace. And when he speaks of that growth, he's not talking about some new work of grace on the part of God. He's talking about us laying hold of and living out the marvelous grace already given to us in Jesus Christ. So he starts out in this letter with what we already have. He lays out for us two gracious gifts that God has already granted to every believer by His divine power. And once again, they're not actually separate gifts. They're just different ways of looking at the same gift. 
He says, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then he says, God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. This declaration that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness reminds me of Paul's declaration in Ephesians 1.3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. What blessings, brothers and sisters, has God withheld from us? None. Absolutely none. If you read the rest of Ephesians 1, you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about. God has lavished His blessings upon us in Christ. He's given us everything that we need to lay hold of real life and real godliness, to be marvelously alive in Christ, and to be excellent image bearers and agents of God. And His precious and magnificent promises spell out for us in living color what that everything looks like. If you ever want to know what you actually need, look at what God has promised to you as His child. That's everything that you need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has given to you everything that you need for life and godliness? If you do, what's the holdup? Maybe you believe God's given you everything that He has promised in His Word, but you're not quite sure how to take it. <laughs> you're not sure how to actually put your hands on it. How do we lay hold of the amazing things that God has promised to us in Jesus Christ? How do we come to possess all that we need for real life and real godliness? Well, Peter tells us. He says the source is God's divine power and the means, the means is through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. This true knowledge of God is the dominant theme of this passage. And this is really important because this is how God grants to us, imparts to us everything that we need for real life and real godliness. The very essence of regeneration Spiritual rebirth into Christ is the transformation from not knowing God to knowing God personally and in a relationship of, of deep love and affection. God takes hearts that do not know Him and replaces those cold, dead, godless hearts with hearts that do know Him. In His high priestly prayer just before His arrest and crucifixion, Jesus said to His Father, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God, in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Peter says here in 2 Peter 1.3 that it is in this personal knowledge of God that God multiplies and magnifies His grace and peace in us. 
Peter says it is through this personal knowledge of God that God has granted to us everything that we need for real life and real godliness. And just a little later in this passage, he says it is that same personal knowledge of God that renders us useful and fruitful for God. All of the Christian life has its foundation in the personal knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. At the end of verse 4, Peter reveals in more specific terms the dramatic change that God brings about in us as we come to personally know God and to know the precious and magnificent promises that He has given to us. He explains this transformation in both the positive and the negative terms. He, he tells us that God is imparting to us something very, very positive and He's removing from us something very, very negative. First, the positive. God has given us these gracious gifts, Peter says, in order that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, in order that we will share God's character. That we will be restored as image bearers of God. That's the very assignment for which God created Adam and Eve in the first place. If you go back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. They were created to partake of, to share in the character and nature of their Creator. To be image bearers. That's the positive part of the transformation that God is doing here. The negative part is having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Peter's talking about the corruption which is the fruit of the lust in men's sinful hearts. Lust, a corruption that's affected the entire universe. Back in 1 Peter 4, Peter made it clear that we are supposed to spend the rest of our time in these mortal bodies no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He said the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Now, it's time to get with and stay with God's program. But how do we escape the corruption that's in this world? Is that an easy thing to do? How can we ever actually succeed in setting aside the corrupting influences and evil desires that surround us and that we carry over as baggage from the old sinful nature? Well, we'll never realize the negative transformation, the abandonment of corruption unless we're realizing the positive transformation. As I read this, I was thinking again of this, the little book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. It's an old classic. It's an easy, it's a quick read. You need to read it. It's really, really worth your time. It is not merely through a steadfast resistance of sin that we escape the corruption in this world. We are most certainly called to steadfastly resist sin. But that by itself will not get the job done. 
It is in knowing God and holding fast to His precious and magnificent promises that we become partakers of His character. And it is as sharers in His character that we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. We have to put on Christ to put off sin. In Matthew 12, Jesus presented a parable about an unclean spirit, a demon, that went out of a man and then roamed around in waterless, barren places looking for another place to rest. He didn't find a place as comfortable and suitable as his previous home, the heart of that previously demon-possessed man. So he returned to that man and he found that home sweet home unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. So that demon gathered up seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they all came to that nice, clean, empty house and took up residence in it. And Jesus said, the last state of that man was far worse than the first. It's very good to have a clean house, beloved. But diligent house cleaning does not get the job done. You have to fill the house with Jesus Christ so that there's no room at the inn when evil practices and evil beings come knocking at the door as they most certainly will. Far too many Christians reduce the Christian life to what they do and don't do when the very definition of the Christian life is personally knowing Jesus Christ. So, the way you get to be a partaker of the character of God is to know, personally, know Christ. And how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you get the true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord that determines absolutely everything about the Christian life? It is life. So how do you get it? Well, first you get it because God gives it to you. You get it when you receive the like precious faith that belongs to every redeemed child of God. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ alone as the Son of God who paid the full eternal penalty for your sin when He died on the cross, you pass from death into life. That life is relationship with God and personal knowledge of God. Even if you never knew anything more about God than that He sent His own beloved Son to an agonizing death on the cross to save you from the penalty and power of your wretched sin forever, you would know enough to know God Himself to know Him, to love Him, to trust Him, and to obey Him. But the Christian life is a continual process of coming to know Him more fully, more truly. To be more and more transformed by that knowing day by day. Transformed into the very likeness of the One that you know and love. 
and believe. Transformed to be a more complete partaker of the divine nature. More fully conformed to Christ. More and more fully restored as an image bearer of the living God. For whose glory and honor you were created and recreated. How God accomplishes that in us is very, very important for us to understand. We need to get this right. This true knowledge of God that Peter is talking about so much in this letter involves propositional knowledge that leads to personal knowledge. The personal knowledge requires the propositional knowledge. To put it in simpler terms, guys, we have to know about God in order to know God. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Isn't it true that the people that you know most deeply and most personally are the people that you know the most about? Peter says in verse 4 that it is by God's precious and magnificent promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. But how do we know what those promises are if God has not spoken? If His faithful prophets and apostles did not write down what those promises are? How would we even know why Jesus died? And what His death accomplished if God had not spoken and told us through the Old Testament prophets, through Jesus Himself, and through the New Testament apostles? There are plenty of people in this world who believe Jesus died. But the way that we know why He died and what He accomplished is because God has told us. He's been telling us for a very long time. Peter talks a whole lot in this short letter about knowing God. And again, that knowledge is first-hand, intimate, personal knowledge. The way a man knows his beloved wife. And a wife knows her beloved husband. It's not merely knowledge about Christ. It's knowledge of Christ. But make, make no mistake, personal knowledge of Christ does not exist apart from knowledge of the Word that God has revealed concerning Christ. One of the verses that my brother Leonard put in the bulletin this morning, Romans 10.17, it says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word concerning Christ. How much of this is the Word concerning Christ? Every word of it. If you're not sure about that, read Jesus' words to... <laughs> the two men he walked with on the road to Emmaus at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Personal knowledge of Jesus Christ does not exist apart from personal knowledge of the Word by which God has revealed Christ. Christ is the living Word. This is the written Word that reveals the living Word. And this is alive too. Your mind is God's intended gateway to your heart. As Tim Keller often says, you can know the Bible without knowing God, 
but you cannot know God without knowing the Bible. That simple reality is as important today as it was when Peter wrote this letter. In the latter days of Peter's life, the heresy known as Gnosticism was becoming a very real threat to the first generation of the church of Jesus Christ. Gnosticism was rife with doctrinal errors, but one of its most pervasively damaging errors was the notion that real personal knowledge of God was a mystical thing that could only be achieved by a select few who successfully made the leap from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. They saw those two realms as mutually exclusive. They placed relatively little importance on the words of Scripture written on paper and papyrus and parchment because those words existed those words existed in the physical realm. There is a new Gnosticism at work in the professing church today, today that is no less destructive to true spirituality. It says that we can grow in the true personal knowledge of God and in genuine godliness without applying any real diligence to knowing God's Word. It says that godliness and genuine relationship with God are all about experience and not about doctrine. It says that doctrine is the new four-letter word in the Christian vocabulary. As a result, an unprecedented number of professing Christians know less about what's actually in the Bible than they know about the locations of their neighborhood pokey stops. When you look at how Peter moves in this letter to, to nudge us toward growth in grace, in the grace of God, driven by growth in our personal knowledge of God, you'll see that he makes a very clear and inviolable connection between knowing God's Word and knowing God. At the very practical level, Peter says that his objective in this letter is to remind believers of the true things that they already know concerning God's grace in Jesus Christ. True things in which Peter says they were already established. That's in verses 12-15. to 15. We'll look at that in more detail later, but I want to get this point out on the table now and I want us to be thinking about this. Where are these true things found that Peter is reminding us about? Peter says... <laughs> They're found in the sacred Scriptures. Listen to what he says in the first couple of verses of chapter 3. You certainly turn there if you'd like. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That you should remember what? The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The things of which Peter is diligently reminding his brothers and sisters in Christ are the truths contained in the Word of God. Old and New Testaments. The very words 
of the prophets and apostles. This isn't so mystical and mysterious that it's unattainable except for some select few. This is God's gift to the world and it's most certainly God's realized, God's attainable, reachable, graspable gift to His people. To His people. I was talking to a guy last week about the, the assertion that there's a bunch of books of the Bible stuck in a vault somewhere in the Vatican that no man has ever seen except the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And I, I said to him, I said, okay, so do you believe in God? Yeah. Do you believe that the God of the Bible is, is God? Yeah. Do you really think, do you really think that the God who sent His own beloved Son to pay the eternal debt of our sin doesn't have it within His ability to make His Word available to His people. It's ridiculous. God has spoken. And Peter says we need to know what He said. Peter says he's writing these things so we'll be able to call them to mind at any time. That means they need to be burned in. They need to become part of our default mindset all the time. Now that does not mean, please hear me, that does not mean you can't start living the Christian life effectively and usefully until you rigorously know everything in the Bible. That would make all of us useless. Okay. But it does mean that all that's in the Bible is given to us by God as His people so that we will know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ personally and we will grow in the grace of God. The personal knowledge of God is always more than just the knowledge of God's written Word, but it is never less. It is never less than the knowledge of God's written Word. Striving to live the Christian life without diligently going after the pure, unadulterated milk of God's Word is like trying to live physically without eating. It can't be done. It can't be done. One of the very most valuable and useful things we will ever do for one another as children of God is, is to do exactly what Peter says he's doing in this letter. To remind our brothers and sisters of the things that God has revealed. In His Word. Isn't that one of the coolest things that we do for each other that other Christians have done for you? He says in chapter 1, verse 15, I will, be, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. We can do that for each other too. Beloved, we must behold God and meet with God in order to know God and we behold Him and meet Him in His Word. If you come to the Word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the Word, you can be absolutely assured that the Holy Spirit is going to make that meeting happen. As you come to know more fully all that God has revealed of Himself and His Word, you will come by the work of the Holy Spirit to more fully know God Himself. And as you come to know Him more fully, that same indwelling Holy Spirit will make you more and more 
a partaker of the divine nature and a child of God conformed to your Father. But Peter does not stop with us sharing God's character. This is not about personal holiness as an end in itself. My brother Patrick said that to me many weeks ago and God has just been... He's had that banging around in my head ever since. God's design for us is not about personal holiness as an end in itself. People used to pay monks. Rich people used to pay monks to be holy for them. Vicarious holiness. Talk about a scam. Now, look, God has a grand and powerful use for us as sharers of His nature. He makes us sharers of His character so we will be bearers of His character to lost and dying souls. Even to angels. As we'll see next week, God is restoring us as agents and image bearers so we'll be useful to Him and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even as He's making us more useful, He's making us ready for an abundant entrance into His glorious kingdom. So, uh, stay tuned. (laughs) This is a great little epistle. Loving Father, thank You for our time together this morning and for these brothers and sisters, these, these fellow sharers in the divine nature by Your doing alone. What a, what a marvelous thing it is, Lord, that You have called us to, that You have given to us in Christ. May we bask in, in who You are and what You have promised and what You are at work to do. And may we, um, may we be sold out, Lord, to Your purposes. May we be really good image bearers during our time on this earth. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.